So today we come to Genesis 1-1, and uh, the caption that goes along with that is the majesty of God. And what I, what I want to focus on today is what does the scripture teach us about the character of God directly from Genesis chapter 1, and specifically chapter 1, verse 1, and his creation. And uh, by way of introduction, at the top of page one of your handout is a schematic of the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is generally divided by chapters 1 through 11, and then chapters 12 through 50. Chapters 1 through 11 are often called primeval history, and chapters 12 through 50 are often categorized as patriarchal history. And the reason for that is if you look at the top of this little schematic, you'll see four major figures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the purpose of Genesis is not to be a scientific treatise, although when it speaks about scientific matters, it always speaks truth, and it's always uh, completely inerrant. Uh, But it's not intended to give us every single detail about what God has done, but it gives us everything that we need to know about, about creation, and it tells us a great deal about creation. So we'll be looking at that Uh, today, and we've looked at it in previous weeks. But it's really looking at how God is unfolding his redemptive plan. And it begins in Genesis chapter 1, and it goes all the way through uh, Genesis 50. But it it, begins with a fairly large-scale introduction to various things. Uh, You're looking at creation, the fall, the flood, and then uh, Tower of Babel, and uh, the the, uh, Table of Nations, the birth of nations in chapters 1 through 11. Chapter 12, of course, is a very important chapter because it inaugurates the Abrahamic covenant, and uh, that's that's a key aspect of the uh, the book of uh, Genesis. You can see uh, down at the bottom of this little schematic, uh, the focus is on uh, humanity, the race of humanity as a whole, and then it begins to narrow down, and it narrows down even more as time goes along. You can see the amount of space that's given to Joseph uh, at the very uh, closing chapters, chapter 17, uh, 30, pardon me, 37 through 50 of, uh, of the book of Genesis. So just an idea of how the book lays itself out. As we go through the material today, what I, I'm going to let you know where we're going on this. Um, we're going to be looking at what God has revealed about himself. And this has been an enormous encouragement to me, and I, I trust and pray that it will be an enormous encouragement to each of you spiritually as we consider what God says about himself. And to the extent that we study and meditate upon and dwell upon the character of God as it begins to really take control of our thinking and our lives. No doubt it will shape the way that we live, uh, the way that we handle uh, the, the events that, bring, that the God brings into our lives. Uh, but as, when we look at the, the phrase, in the beginning, and we've talked about this in previous times, there's only one uncreated being in all of the universe, and that's God. Everything else, God created, and created it out of nothing. The Westminster divines in their shorter catechism define creation very succinctly, very accurately, as God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. That's, that's a very accurate, very succinct uh, summary of creation. God begins there making all things, all things, it's comprehensive, nothing is accepted, everything is made by God out of nothing, 
How? By the word of his power. How long did it take? In the space of six days. And at the end of chapter one, he declares it very good. And so that, that's a, a very accurate synopsis of where we are. But we begin with this definition of in the beginning. And I've mentioned this before, but all things of nothing. And the technical expression for that is a Latin expression. You don't need to necessarily memorize this, but ex nihilo, literally from nothing. No pre-existing material. God made everything literally from nothing didn't reshape what already existed. And that's a major factor. We need to remember that, that when we'll talk about this in more detail, but when the scripture talks about God creating, in chapter one, he uses a a word, uh, barah in the Hebrew, that literally means uh, to make new. It doesn't mean to reshape, to reformulate, to reconstruct. It means literally to to make absolutely new from nothing, uh, from no preexisting material. But it's, uh, it, there's great comfort to us as we consider the God that we worship. And I don't know what challenges each of you may be facing or have faced or will face. Uh, all of us face difficult times, challenging times, perplexing times. But when we consider the God that we worship and a God who created all things, the God who sustains all things, the God who in his wisdom and his power and his majesty created everything literally out of nothing, by simply declaring, let it be. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that we pray to. That's the God that we lean upon. That's the God that we call upon. And it should be enormously comforting to us, enormously reassuring to us as we pray to the God who reveals himself in Scripture. Psalm 121, Moses, uh, actually, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, but Psalm 121, it's one of the um, pilgrim psalms, one of the psalms of ascent. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Where does our help come from? I I remember watching Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music years ago, and and there was, she's quoting the King James, and and the King James, I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. Our our help does not come from the hills, but but that's just a very, that's one of those unfortunate translations, but it's a statement, not a, it's, it, it's, it's a question, not a statement. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made everything. So when you're praying through a situation, you need wisdom, you need direction, you need power, you need resolution to, to anxiety in your life. Who are you praying to? The God who made everything. And, and I just, uh, I, just this last week, as I was just reflecting on this, I, I just did a little search on internet search. Is there anything too hard for God? Of course, I knew the answer is no. But uh, there is 14 pages of verses. And uh, it just, if you do the search, and it comes up a little website called openbible.info. If you want the link, I'll share it with you. But there's about 100 Bible verses that all relate to is anything too hard. And it's a wonderful little collection of verses to meditate upon. We, we should be filling our minds with the power of God and, and the fact that he's the one that we lean upon. But Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Genesis eighteen fourteen, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time, and Sarah will have a son. You know the setting for that. That's a promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. They were well advanced in years, well beyond childbearing years. Humanly speaking, it was just simply not going to happen. But God is never bound by what we consider to be humanly speaking. He loves to do things that are impossible for a man to do. And so he said, you're going to have a child. 
And uh, the scripture tells us that, that God said they're going to be as vast as the stars of the sky. And Abraham, we're told in Genesis 15, looked up at the sky and he looked at this vast array of stars that God had made, named every single one of them, billions of stars. And he believed God, and the scripture says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a, it, Genesis 15, verse 6. But nothing is too difficult for God. That's the God that we're reading about in Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we, we in, in Paul, the apostle, uh, in the New Testament, when we look at Romans 8, what will separate us from the love of God? And I'm, I'm sure that, that neither death nor life nor angels or, print, or rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing or not, neither anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So many incredibly important truths in Scripture are all rooted in creation. Creation reveals to us who God is. Creation reveals to us the character of God, the attributes of God. And, and so that's literally what we're going to be working through today. Now, top of page two, now, the name that God uses for himself in Genesis 1, verse 1. And it's the name that he uses in all of chapter 1. Uh, it's the Hebrew word Elohim. It's a plural word. Some have looked at the word Elohim, it is a plural word, uh, as indicative of the Trinity. In my opinion, that's a bit of an overstatement. The, the scripture clearly, absolutely, unequivocally teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, but what Elohim is used typically is a plural of majesty. It's, it's a way that God expresses himself um, as a plural of majesty, the, the God of all gods, so to speak. Uh, but we see in verse 3 that the Spirit of God moved upon the surface of the waters. And then in the New Testament, you've got the, the attestation that the Son of God himself in John 1 and Colossians 1, the testimony that Jesus Christ was instrumental in creation as well. So you've got all three persons of the Godhead uh, pivotally involved in, in creation. Uh, but the word Elohim, it really relates to the majesty of God, the power of God. And that's why I, I captioned our study today, Genesis 1, 1, the majesty of God. And, and John uh, Calvin, uh, the reformer, says Elohim is used as a name for the Father in distinction uh, from the Spirit who appears in verse 2. I mentioned verse 3 earlier. It should be verse 2. So created, created. Um, it's so important that we understand that God made everything that is literally out of nothing by the word of his power. Uh, there was no reformulation of anything, no reconstruction, no shaping of any pre-existing material. Before God created, there was absolutely nothing except for God. And he was perfectly satisfied and is perfectly satisfied in and of himself. God needs nothing to add to himself, to complete himself, to satisfy himself. There is no need that God has. And so he created it. Why? Because it pleased him. Because he desired to create all that is. And, and it's, it's really that, that simple. Uh, but the word that is used for create literally always has God as its subject. Uh, man doesn't do what is described in Genesis chapter 1. This word is uniquely associated with God himself. And making something literally not from pre-existing material but, but from nothing. Uh, and a scholar by the name of Alec Macher says, when this verb to create has a subject, 
it's always God. When it has a presumed subject, it's always God. And it's used three times in chapter 1 to create the, the, all, the, all things, uh, to, to create uh, living creatures in verse 21, and then the creation of man in verse 27. Hebrews 11, down at the bottom of the page, uh, a, a theme that we've just touched upon, but it's echoed in the New Testament. You know, the author of Hebrews uh, says that the, the, the conviction that God created literally everything by the word of his power, out of nothing, for his own pleasure, is, is really a, a fundamental truth in our faith. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There have been authors, many of them evangelical authors, who have really struggled with this concept of how they quote-unquote reconcile the, the Scripture's testimony about creation with what science says. We don't need to reconcile what the Scripture says with science. The, the, the Scripture itself is the only authoritative standard that we have for faith and practice. We don't need to reconcile it. At the end of all time, science will bow the knee to, to the scripture. There's no question about that. I'm not anti-science. I, I've studied years and years uh, in biology and chemistry. I became a believer at NASA, uh, at the Manned Spacecraft Center. I appreciate science. I spent a great part of my life involved in that world. I'm not disparaging science, but we don't need to reconcile the scripture to science. We need, we need to reconcile science to the scripture. And so the, the scripture speaks for itself. Uh, but, the, but the scripture says uh, in Genesis 1 that he created the heavens and the earth. That expression, the heavens and the earth, is likely what we call a merism. You could think of it as bookends. Uh, it, you don't need to remember book, uh, merism. It's just a literary device <clears throat> that, that talks about gathering everything between those two words. So when you use heavens and the earth... That's, that's a literary device for saying everything is included. It's, it's exhaustive. There is nothing that is outside the range of heavens and earth. So literally, God created everything. And so it's, it's all-inclusive, as one author has said. But it's more than that. It's more than simply saying that, we, that God created everything without exception. It's also a statement that he's, he created both the material and immaterial world. The, the material world and the spiritual world. Uh, and if you're wondering when angels were created, it would be my conviction that it was right in verse 1, when he created the heavens. That speaks of the spiritual world, the intangible world. The invis it's invisible to us. Angels manifest themselves or can manifest themselves, certainly in a human form or some other, any form that they wish. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's, generally speaking, we, we need to recognize that there is an entire universe out there that we don't see, but it's very real. It's a spiritual world. And um, so this is the immaterial world, and the Scripture is saying that God created everything without exception, the heavens and the earth, the spiritual world, and the material world. Uh, one author says heaven refers to a higher world of angels, of God's throne, and of God's glory. There, there is a created spiritual world just as there is a created material world. So angels would have been created, uh, in, in my estimation, and this is not a novel concept for me, this is one that is shared by many, when, when the scripture says uh, he created the heavens, that spiritual world, the, the, the part that we don't see, but it's absolutely real. 
And, and I say that this has been the testimony of the church literally since the early centuries. The, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Uh, wrote uh, a creed that is a very important creed in Christendom, uh, the Nicene Creed. And I believe in one God, Father of Almighty. That would be recognizing the term Elohim as the God, God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. And then his last expression of all things visible and invisible. So the heavens and the earth would be an expression of the totality of everything that exists, both visible and invisible, material and immaterial. And so verse 2 of chapter 1 deals with the earth separately from the heavens. So verse 1 would be the creation of the immaterial world and the material world, and then it begins to flesh out, so to speak, the creation of the tangible material world that we see all around us in verse 2. When we begin with this, um, this chapter of Genesis, we're looking at a, a, a direction, a storyline that is developed throughout all of Scripture. And, and so where is this going? That would be a question. What, what's the trajectory of this narrative that we read about in Genesis 1? When you begin to, to outline a historical event, uh, the author has an intended object in mind, a destination in mind. And the question is, where's this heading? What, what's the storyline as it unfolds? And we need to remember as we answer that question, who were the original readers of the Pentateuch? The, the original readers of the Pentateuch were the Israelites in the wilderness. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, all of it, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, during the time after the Exodus when they were traveling around for 40 years and Moses wrote all of it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the, the question would be, what did the original readers of the Pentateuch, the Torah, uh, the five books of Moses, uh, understand to be the trajectory, the storyline, so to speak? And if you put yourself in their shoes, what were they experiencing? They had experienced deliverance from bondage. They had deliverance, uh, deliverance from captivity in Pharaoh's land, uh, abject slavery, uh, inhumane treatment. God himself had worked in a miraculous way to open the Red Sea to deliver them through a series of plagues and ultimately uh, devastating the, the army of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And they knew this; they were being led to a land that God had promised. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of deliverance from bondage. And that's really what Moses is beginning to outline for us in the book of Genesis is deliverance from bondage, deliverance from slavery. We see in Genesis the creation of man, the fall of man, the consequences of the fall of man, the devastation that it brings, and then the majestic promise in Genesis 3.15 that there would be redemption, that there would be deliverance. And so they realized as they were looking uh, about them and they were hearing the words of the, of the book of Genesis from Moses himself as they were traveling around in the, in the wilderness, that this was a, a storyline that ultimately is consummated in days beyond theirs when God himself would provide a deliverer, a, a savior. And that's why John the Apostle in the New Testament, in his gospel, the very first chapter, the very first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that first expression, does it sound familiar to you? In the beginning was the Word. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
It's, it's a direct echo of Genesis 1-1 in John 1-1. And the Apostle John begins to unfold the New Testament fulfillment of the promises that were initially made in the book of Genesis. So it's important that we recognize that what's going on in the book of Genesis is God is unfolding a redemptive plan. Uh, he's talking about covenant history. He's talking about how he's going to raise up a deliverer, how he's going to rescue his creation from sin. And he does that you know, through a family that he's created. The key in all of this uh, that I want us to focus on today, and, and you're going to hear the word implication or application often, as we look at how has God revealed himself in the book of Genesis, in particular Genesis 1, and even more specifically in Genesis 1, verse 1, we're going to be looking at the attributes of God, the character of God. And as we talk about each one, you're going to hear me say the implications or the applications are, and, and it, this is more than an academic exercise. It's more than, than a treatise in, in the, the doctrine of God per se. It's here's what God has revealed about himself and here's what this means to us as believers in this God. So the character of God, two vital points about the knowledge of God. The first is that this is really the most important thing of all. Uh, we're told in John 17 that this is eternal life, uh, that they may know you, the only true God. There is nothing more important, brothers and sisters, than that we know God. There is no endeavor that we could possibly pursue that is more important than that we understand God. We will never grasp him in his totality. When we use the word God is incomprehensible, that does not mean that we cannot understand God. It just simply means that the finite cannot adequately wrap itself around the infinite. But we, we can gather a lot about what God has said. Everything that we need to know about God, he's revealed to us. And by the enlightenment, uh, the illumination, I should say, of the Holy Spirit, we will understand these things and he will apply them uh, to us. But the, uh, the important thing is that we understand the very character of God. And, and that's uh, top of page five. This has always been a focal point among faithful men uh, in, the, in the history of the church. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, you know that name, Metropolitan Tabernacle, um, a good Baptist preacher in the 1800s in England, 38-year uh, pulpit ministry uh, in, in London. The very first sermon that Charles Spurgeon gave uh, as a 19-year-old man, uh, he, he began by saying this, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind and a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. There's, it shouldn't surprise us that God prospered the ministry of Charles Spurgeon as he did because Charles Spurgeon began with the focal point, the emphasis, the priority that each of us as Christians should have, and that is what should we long after, aspire after, labor for, and that is to understand God, to study God. And, and that study will change our lives. It will absolutely revolutionize our lives. J.I. Packer, a more contemporary commentator, you now with the Lord, he says this, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place 
if we, for those who neglect to know God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. If you want to understand why our culture is in disarray, if you want to understand the the devolution of of our culture, J.I. Packer gave you the reason right there. We live in times where people have disregard for for God himself. They have no intent as a whole. I'm not speaking about Christians. I'm talking about our culture. They have no intent of studying God. They're ignoring God. They're rebelling against God. And there are consequences. There are radically destructive consequences to that. Paul speaks of that in Romans 1. He gave them over to their destruction. He gave them exactly what they're seeking after, and that's degradation. And we see that being played out before our very eyes today. So the important thing, and this uh, is just down at, at the bottom of page 5, whenever we study the Bible, whether it's in a care group, whether it's in a 2 o'clock family Bible hour, whether it's at 3 o'clock a worship service, whether it's in your private devotions, whatever the case may be, the one question we always need to ask is, is and, and when you're walking away from your Bible at the end of your time, uh, you should ask yourself this question, what did I just learn about God? What, is, what does the Scripture tell me about God? If we're not asking that question, we're missing the, the kernel of what we should be looking at. What, what has God just revealed about himself in the scriptures? We should always be learning more and more about God. And so that's how we're going to approach Genesis 1. The first thing that we notice, top of page 6, is that God is transcendent. When we read that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that he created everything without exception, immaterial, material, the tangible earth, the spiritual world, everything. No exception. God himself simply spoke it into existence because he wanted to, because it pleased him in the space of six days. There is this distance between the creator and the created, between God himself and his creation. The failure to apprehend that distance, it, it leads us to rebellion. When, when we don't see ourselves as the creature and God as the creator and we begin to usurp his role and we begin to treat ourselves as if we were the creator, I'm not talking about we in this, in this auditorium, this, this sanctuary today, but when, when you look at culture and they begin to view themselves as the epicenter of all creation, then what, what that leads to, that's rebellion against God. We always remember that God is the creator and that we are the creation, that he made us. Why? For his own pleasure, to glorify him. Why, why did God create? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Anything short of that, and we're missing the mark. Anything short of glorifying God and enjoying him is clearly missing the trajectory for which God created us. And believe me, there's a lot of people who are sadly missing that very point. And for the Christian, that should be our our life's endeavor to glorify God and to enjoy him, to, to prosper before God by pleasing him. But he's transcendent. It means he's over all that he's created. Uh, he's, he spoke it into existence. Uh, Moses, in the Song of Moses, Exodus 15, Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There's nothing that can compare with God. There's a, if, there, there's a, a little song in, in the Jewish congregations, Mika Mocha. Uh, my wife knows that. It was, it was a song they would sing often. Who is like you? And the Bible answered that, there's none like you. That's the Mekamoka, there's none that, that is like God. God is unique. God is God. God is a creator. And so theologians, often because we can't really adequately describe all that God is, 
in many cases will revert to negative statements. Well, what is he not? Uh, well, he is uh, infinite. He is not finite. He is independent. He is not dependent. He is immutable. He's not capable of change. So sometimes we have to use contrast to, to say what God is like. Well, we say he's the creator. He's not the created. He's, he's immutable. He never changes. He's transcendent. He, he's not subject to his creation. He made it all. He rules it all. We need to always remember these antithetical statements about God. When I say antithetical, these contrasts that I just made, that he's infinite, not finite, etc. John Calvin began his work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, one of the, the greatest works in, in Christian history, uh, by saying that, uh, that we, we, while we cannot know God perfectly, that we can't comprehend every single thing about God, but that, that what we can know about God, we learn a great deal by studying what? His creation, his creation. Paul says that in Romans 1, that, that God's creation uh, bears testimony about himself, his majesty, his power, his wisdom. All of that is manifest. Every single person is without excuse in all of God's creation. Whether they've got a Bible or not, they have a revelation. And, and so every single person in, in the planet, in all of history, has had the, the witness of God himself in creation. It's not an adequate revelation to, to show us the need for, to, to, to show us exactly how we repent and come to Christ. We find that in the scriptures, but it certainly reveals to us that there is God and that we are the creation and he is the creator. So uh, Calvin was simply making this point uh, that, um, that we can study creation. When we say God is transcendent, we, we often think of his, the, what God has made, um, that he's made all things, that he's above all things, that he he's transcends it all, he's higher than all of it, uh, infinitely higher uh, than all of it, uh, but he's also transcendent in time. Uh, when God made all things, he literally created time. He literally created history. God does not occupy time. He enters time from, from occasion to occasion, but God is, there is, when we talk about time, there is a sequence of events, a, a passage of, of events that, that occurs. God sees everything all at once, all of, all of history in one, in one uh, glimpse, if I can use that expression. God enters time. He's not bound to enter time, but he does enter time from occasion to occasion. But God is infinite. He's eternal. He created time itself. And if you have trouble sort of wrapping your minds around that, welcome to the crowd. So that's, that, but, that, but that's absolutely a true statement, that God created time. He, he occupies eternity. He sees the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. And, and he sees exactly everything that will transpire, number one, because he's foreordained it. And he's, he's determined what will take place. He's determined what, what history will, will unfold. He's sovereign over all of history. He sees the end of the, of the, of the sequence immediately. He sees the beginning. Uh, at the same instance, he sees the end. And, and if, again, it's, it's incomprehensible to us as finite creatures, but that absolutely is true, that God created time. And, and so he's, he's uh, eternal. Uh, Moses, there's one psalm in the Psalter that, that is accredited to, the, to uh, Moses himself, who wrote Genesis, down at the bottom of page 6, uh, from everlasting to everlasting you are God, Psalm 90, verse 2. Implication. I, I told you earlier that, uh, that you, you would hear that on top of page 7. What do we do about that? What's the response to everything that, that we've just talked about? And, and one response, the only appropriate response, 
is that we fall on our faces before this holy God and we worship him and we recognize him for who he is and we acknowledge him for who he is, the God of the universe who made everything simply because he pleased, a God who's in absolute control, a God who knows the end from the beginning, a God for whom there is no doubt, a God who does not learn, God does not learn. There is a, a very unfortunate false teaching in some circles in Christianity called the openness of God. God does not learn, God is not surprised. None of this takes place. God does not learn. He foreordains. He decrees everything that is, and everything that he decrees happens without fall. Without fall. God is also imminent. When we say imminent, there's two words that sound alike. Imminent, E-M-I-N-E-N-T, which means someone who's imminent, that means they're, they're important. Imminent means near. And sometimes when we look at transcendent, we think God is very far away. Brothers and sisters, God is not only very far away, he is incredibly close. He is imminent. He is near at hand. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. There is no place that you can go where he is not. Psalm 139, if I go to, to the ascent of heaven, you are there. If I descend to the bowels of Sheol, you are there. Where can I flee from your presence? There is no place I can flee from your presence. There is no place you can go that God is not there. Everything that you do, everything that you think, is immediately in the presence of God himself. God himself literally knows every one of us personally, infinitely, directly, and, and there is no place that we can go that he is not there. That should be an encouragement, and it also should be a conviction. When, when we think about going someplace that we shouldn't be going, just remember God's already there. He, he knows where you are. That's not really the focal point. I don't want to dwell on that, but the reality is that God is imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, close at hand, personal. He created us not because he needs companionship, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of them uh, eternal, uh, immutable, uh, co-equal in power and glory. They don't need anything or anyone, but God created man, uh, man and woman. Why? So that he could have a relationship with them. What a, what a treasure that is. Was it required that God do that? Of course not. Why, was it necessary for God to create man? Absolutely not. Why did he create man in Genesis 1? Because it pleased him. And in his sovereign plan and in his eternal decree, he would rescue his people, not all of us, but, but he would rescue his people, and each of us would be trophies of his glory. Why? So that he would receive honor and glory and majesty from all eternity and say, these are the ones I purchased with the blood of my dear son. These undeserving people I've rescued from sin, I've rescued from Satan, I've rescued from death. I created them to, to make them displays of my, my glory, my majesty, my love. He's very close. He, he's very imminent. And we should realize that. The very fact that in the beginning God created and indicates that he wills to be known and to share a relationship with those outside himself. So he's personal. The implication of all of that is, it's in the second paragraph under this, it, it's worship. Submission, obedience. God has created us to please him, to honor him, to glorify him. The only appropriate lifestyle for a believer is to recognize that God has made us for himself and that we are not our own. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, do you know what he says? Glorify God with your body. We, we are, Paul describes himself as a doulos, a slave, a bond slave of Christ. That's, we're all literally bond slaves of Christ. 
And we're also described as saints, not because we've been beatified by some church on earth, but because we've been declared holy uh, by, by God himself, that our sins have been taken and imputed to Christ himself, and that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. So God is, is, um, is, impotent, is um, transcendent, he's imminent, he's almighty. It's evident from Genesis 1. It's God who made all things, out of, literally out of nothing. He's omnipotent. And uh, Psalm 33, there are so many psalms. I, I, again, I, I did a little search also, psalms about creation. It, it's amazing. Um, yes, your Bible has a concordance, but sometimes I cheat and I'll just do a little search and I'll just do, what does God say about creation in the psalms? And up pops 20 psalms about creation. And I, I read it with some discernment, but, I, but someone's already done the homework, so I, I benefit from that. The psalms have so much to say about, about creation. And one example is in Psalm 33. The psalmist says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He spoke it, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That's in the book of Psalms. That's not Genesis 1-1, but it's, it's precisely what Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 1. So God is infinite. He's, pardon me, he's transcendent. He's imminent. Uh, he's, he's powerful. Dimensions to God's power. Uh, top of page 8. Um, three aspects, and I, I will touch on these briefly. His power is infinite, his power is sovereign, and his power is redemptive. It is infinite, it is sovereign, and those two are closely related, and it is redemptive. When we say his power is infinite, there is literally nothing that God cannot do. Uh, there is, he does everything he wills to do, um, and, and um, that should not surprise us. The testimony of the Scripture is unequivocal about this. The God who spoke everything to existence simply by the declaration, let there be or let us make. In the case of man, he, he changed his, his, his verbiage from let there be to let us make. Um, but simply by declaration, let there be, uh, there was instantly right there, right on the spot. He formed it out of nothing with, with no previous material. And, and so that should... That should uh, A.W. Pink is God has a will to resolve what he deems good, so he has the power to execute his will. Implication. Again, I told you I'd say that word often. What does that mean to us? Whatever you're facing, whatever struggle you're working through, there is, the arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save. That, that unsaved relative that you care deeply about, I, I can't tell you whether God will sovereignly bring that, that person uh, to Christ. I don't know that. But God can do anything he wants. Whatever you're suffering from, whatever um, conflict you're facing, whatever uncertainty is in your life, the God who spoke the entire world into existence simply by saying, let there be, his power is at your presence. I remember there was a time when Diane needed some care. We couldn't get the doctor's attention. I I sent, I said, what do we do? She was dealing with a precancerous growth. We needed immediate attention. I emailed a friend of mine, and, and I said, would you please pray about this? And he fired back immediately. Uh, he, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even imagine. Ephesians 3.20. I've never forgotten that. That's one of those verses that I go to with, can God do all things? He's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or even imagine. And he did that that day. He literally opened up that day. There's a dermatologist that absolutely was previously the president of the American Dermatological Association within five minutes of her house. And he, and he worked Diane in, into a treatment. God gave her exactly what she needed. The treatment was successful. 
Does God hear prayer? Absolutely. Can God do whatever he wants to do? Absolutely. The only appropriate response is to glorify him and to say thank you. I've shared a number of instances where God has spared me from various physical maladies, some of them fairly significant. I love to testify of God's goodness. I love to say, to brag on God's goodness and say, look what God did. Not, for, not because I'm important, but because God is important. And we need to always remember that. But the only appropriate response to the infinite power of God is to say, hallelujah. Thank you, God, for being so kind, so merciful, so gracious, so good, so powerful. So we rely upon this God. This, was, this is the testimony of King Jehoshaphat, Second Chronicles 20. Lord, we don't know what to do, but it's in your hands. And you know what? He wiped out two armies right there. You can read the account in Second Chronicles 20. His power is sovereign. Sovereign means absolute control to do whatever he wishes. You need to remember that God is not only omnipotent, but he's infinitely wise and he's infinitely good. And, and so when God ordains something to take place, number one, it's always wise. There's so many perplexities in our lives. We don't know sometimes why something is developing the way it is. And, and this side of heaven, that may always be the case. We won't always see a resolution to these questions in our lives. But one thing you can be assured of is that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because those whom he's foreordained, he's also conforming to the very image of his son. He has a purpose, brothers and sisters, for everything that is taking place in your life. That's Romans 8, 38, 39. His power is sovereign, and, and he does what he will. A.W. Tozer, top of page 9. Sovereignty and omnipotence must go together. One cannot exist without the other. The potter and the clay. Um, I'm not going to make it through page 14. I can see that. But, uh, but maybe we'll pick up uh, this time next time. But, uh, but it, it, it sometimes is a challenge for us when we read passages in Romans 9 about God being the potter and us being the clay. But that's exactly what we are, brothers and sisters. We are the clay. We are the created ones. And, and God Almighty is the potter, and he shapes us, and he, he works in us. And does he not have a right over what he's made? Paul asked, of course. Of course he has a right. Why? Because he made us. He made us, okay? It, it, you know, so does he not have the prerogative to, to do with this as he will? He does. But you're not dealing with, with a, a despot. You're dealing with the God of the universe who is infinitely wise, who's infinitely good, who always does things in, in a perfect way, never capricious, never arbitrary, sometimes puzzling because we're finite and we're not infinite, but, but never capricious, always good, always for our good, always for his glory, never an exception to that, nothing too difficult, always a perfect end. And in redemptive, uh, when we look at um, what God has done here, um, bottom of page 9 God glorifies his power in the highest extent um, think about what he did to gain victory over sin To how does a holy God take undeserving rebels who have no innate propensity to seek after God in fact we're hardwired to go after uh, to go away from God to resist him to rebel against him how does God take those people and, and bring them into his immediate presence as justified in his sight? Only God can do that. How did he do that? Look at what he did. He sent, his, he sent God himself. The Father sent the Son himself. 
born of a virgin, it, it, you know, to, to become a man in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, to fulfill the law. That, that's a, a miracle on every level, just as transcendent, just as miraculous as creation itself, that God himself would send himself, that he would send God to be among us, to dwell among us, to suffer the slings and arrows of an evil world, to die for undeserving people who are his rebels who hate him, and, and purchase them by, by literally dying for the, for the very people who would love to do injury to God himself. That's the, God designed redemption. In Genesis 3.15, the, the seed of the woman will crush the, 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 the seed of the serpent. And he did exactly that. But, it, but he was bruised. He was bruised on his heel. God himself suffered greatly. And so we look at this. How does God take undeserving rebels and bring them into himself without compromising his own character? Romans 3 tells us he, he's just and justifier. He did that by the, the substitutionary work of Christ. Christ took upon himself the, the sin that each of us had committed, all of it, every single one, past, present, future, without exception. Literally, the Son paid the, the hell that we deserve, an infinite hell in a matter of hours, in his own person. So God's wrath was fully satisfied. We call that propitiation in himself. And, and God himself clothed us with the righteousness of his own Son, the only one who's ever kept the law perfectly. Guess what? When God sees you, he sees you, brothers and sisters, as someone who literally has kept the law perfectly. He knows from a real-time knowledge of us that we don't do that, but he credits us with the, the, the perfect law-keeping of his Son. God designed redemption, and he accomplished redemption perfectly. That's, 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 that's his power manifested in a redemptive way. So we'll, we'll pick up there next time. We'll pick up um, uh, page 10. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up here and there'll be some more information for you next time. So ha- save your notes. And um, so that, again, the, where are we going on this? We're, we're talking about what has God revealed about himself in Genesis 1, the God who spoke all, all into existence um, by, his, by his word in the space of six days and all very good. And uh, what does that tell us about God? And most importantly for us, what impact should that have in our lives as we meditate upon the character of God as he reveals himself? Because the, the, the scripture tells us that, that God reveals his character. And, and so how will we know God by looking at the scriptures? And we're doing that. So again, to revert back to the statement that we made at the very beginning, what's the most important question that we can ask as we study the Bible? What did I just learn about God? And what, how will this shape my life? I don't want this to just occupy my mind. I want this to shape my heart. I want this to, to make an impact on my life so that I can honor him. Father, we 